life. Well, if I can invite you to grab your Bibles, please do so and turn them open to the book of Judges. Uh, Today we're stepping back into our study of this book. As you know, uh, we paused our study of Judges to take a a short tour through its complimentary book called Ruth during Advent. Well, this week and next week we return to wrap up our journey through Judges. So knowing that we are a Jesus-loving city-serving, Bible-teaching family of faith. And so we love to walk through books of the Bible, and we've been walking through Judges for a little while now. So find your way to Judges chapter 17. Now, if you're new with us or if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, you are in for a treat this week and next week. As one member said not too long ago, it seems like everything our culture hates about Christianity is found in the book of Judges. And uh, that's, you're welcome. And so uh, Judges chronicles the darkest period in Israel's history. It's descriptive, not prescriptive, as it, as it paints a sobering portrait of sinful humanity. And it showcases a humanity that is in desperate need of being saved from itself. Now, we've just wrapped up the core of this book, which tells 12 stories of how God intervenes to deliver his people, to rescue them from themselves and And yet with each story that we read and each story that we've studied, the depravity just increases in intensity with every turn. So from the beginning to the ending of the book of Judges, uh, the book spirals downward, taking a corkscrew-like movement in the book. So that when you reach the bottom of the book, which is where we are today and it's where we're going to be next week, that's that's when the stuff really hits the fan. Uh, That's when everything really gets messy and we're just left with a huge mess wondering if there's any hope for redemption, any hope for deliverance. But as we've seen time and time again, God has woven a silver thread of salvation, not only throughout the book of Judges, but throughout all the books of the Old Testament. And if we trace that thread, if we follow that thread, it's going to lead us to finding life in Christ and who is our hope. And So what you have here in chapters 17 all the way to chapter 21 is a two-part epilogue. And it's quite different from everything that we've studied up to this point. You see, the earlier passages uh, have given us a bird's-eye view of things, only telling us that people did what was evil in the Lord's sight. We've heard that phrase over and over and over again. But when you step into the final chapters, we're, we're telescoped in, and we're not just being told that people did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. We're actually being shown how they did that. And we're getting description of how the people of Israel rebelled against the Lord. And the view of humanity is so bleak at the end of the book. It's such a bleak picture that one commentator, one commentator said that it's, it's no wonder that these passages are almost never preached on and they are almost never studied. So again, you're welcome, right? This is what we're doing. So if you would, I think it'd be a good idea to to pray one more time uh, before we dive into this passage. So if you would join me in praying for our study tonight. Heavenly Father, we say in faith that all scripture is breathed out by you and that all scripture is profitable for us. I pray that your Holy Spirit would help us over these next few moments to, to profit from the study of these pages and these passages. We pray in light of what we've just sung together that you would show us Christ in your word, that you would lead us to find life in him. God, we ask for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, the biggest threat 
the biggest threat to the health and the vitality of our spiritual lives. The biggest threat to the health and vitality of our church as we step into 2019 is not that you and I might abandon the faith. The biggest threat as we step into chapters, as step into 2019 is, is whether or not we will accommodate our faith. What I mean is that it's not that some people may push back from the table of Christianity and find someplace entirely, someplace else entirely to eat. It's that those who remain at the table of Christianity will begin introducing artificial foods and artificial flavorings in an effort to accommodate to a dissatisfied palate. That's the biggest threat I believe we are facing, so much so that when the prodigal son or the prodigal daughter who leaves the church and they want to return home and they finally show back up, they they discover there's nothing substantial for them to return home to because things have been adjusted, things have been accommodated so much that there's no substance left in the church. You see, when the substance of the Christian faith is adjusted to reflect the passions or the priorities or the preferences of, of the surrounding or the predominant culture, that's a form of what religious scholars refer to as syncretism. It's what we are calling today wayward worship. And wayward worship is what you're going to see displayed in today's story. You see, wayward worship co-ops the forms of the Christian faith while crucifying its substance. It co-ops the forms while crucifying the substance. Which means that as long as there are churches, there will always be worship services. People will always gather like this as long as there are churches. It means that baptisms will always be practiced. Lord's Supper will always be observed. It means that churches will always sing and they will always pray and they will always, in some degree, to some degree, talk about the Bible. Christmas and Easter will always be celebrated. The forms of the faith are well established and they will always be practiced in some way, shape, or form. But the biggest threat to the health and vitality of our spiritual lives and to our church doesn't concern the forms of our faith. It concerns the substance of our faith. That is the meaning of our worship gatherings, the meaning of our baptisms, the meaning of the Lord's Supper, the meaning of our singing, the meaning of our praying, the meaning of our scripture study. It refers to the meaning of Christmas and Easter and every generation of God's people have faced that threat on some level including the people of Israel during the time of Judges. What you're going to find in this story is that they not only faced this threat, they were overtaken by it. And so what we're going to see as we step into chapter 17 is we're going to find in them an example of, of how wayward worship arises when allegiance to God's revelation erodes. That is, wayward worship arises when allegiance to God's revelation erodes. Let me show you how this shows up. Look at verse 1 of chapter 17. There we read, there was a man from the hill country of Ephraim named Micah. He said to his mother, the 1,100 pieces of silver taken from you and that I heard you place a curse on, here's the silver, I took it. Then his mother said, my son, may you be blessed by the Lord. So we meet this guy named Micah. He's not a very good son. He's stolen a bunch of silver from his mom, but then he learns that it, that that's been cursed, and so he's kind of afraid of that, so he wants to give it back and make things right. And so when he returns the silver, his mom receives it, and then she not only forgives him, but she blesses him. Look at verse 3. He returned the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother, and his mother said, 
I personally consecrate the silver to the Lord for my son's benefit to make it a carved image and a silver idol. I will give it back to you. So he returned the silver to his mother and she took five pounds of silver and gave it to a silversmith. He made it into a carved image and into a silver idol. And it was in Micah's house. This man Micah had a shrine and he made an ephod and household idols and installed one of his sons to be his priest. So wayward worship arises when allegiance to God's revelation erodes. And this has clearly happened in this story. Because here you have a family who knows God's name. They know God as the Lord, that is Yahweh. They know him to be the redeemer of the people of Israel, the one who delivered them from Egyptian slavery. But we're also finding that they're utterly confused about what this Lord is like, what God is about. It's such a messy picture, and it's interesting that when you look at verse 1, what's translated Micah there, there's a full Hebrew word that sounds something like Micah Yahu, which basically takes Yahu's name, the Lord, and puts it at the end of Micah. That's who we're introduced to in verse 1, and what his name means is, who is like the Lord? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is obvious. No one is like the Lord. He is utterly different from any other person, place, or thing. But after what we see him do in verse 5, Yahweh, that root to his name, is taken out. It's dropped entirely. So that he's only then known as Micah in the remaining Hebrews, Hebrew text. Now what that means is that this is the narrator's way of signaling that Micah's allegiance to the Lord's revelation has eroded. That the Lord's presence in Micah's life has been reduced. When our identity as human beings cease to be defined by who the Lord is and what the Lord is about, you can rest assured that our worship has gone wayward. Because wayward worship is always reductionistic. It always reduces the Lord's presence. It always reduces the Lord's reality in how we're thinking and in how we are acting. We see this in this story because what you find here being reduced is a reduction of God's attributes. Notice that the mother took 1,100 pieces of silver and she devoted this silver to the Lord by using it to fund a carved image and a silver idol. This is a, a shocking use of these funds. It's a startling dynamic because it's such a blatant betrayal of commandment number two. Back in Exodus chapter 20, verse 4, we are told, do not make an idol for yourself, whether in the shape of anything in the heavens above or on the earth below or in the waters under the earth. So don't make any image of God out of any aspect of creation. Now, the substance of that command concerns the attributes of God. It concerns what God is like. You see, the reason why God prohibits you and I from making images of him in the shape of anything in creation is because if we do try to make an image of him, we will inevitably reduce him to being less than he is. We will not capture the full range of his glory in any image that we carve out. It would only result in a distorted, reduced view of who God is. The people of Israel should know this because they made the mistake back in the book of Exodus when Aaron formed a golden calf and the people of Israel worshipped this golden calf. Now when they formed this golden calf, they were not creating another God. Instead, they were creating another way of worshipping the Lord. A way that, it was not, that was not loyal to his revelation. Now this golden calf may have communicated something about God's power. 
It may have communicated something about God's provision. It may have communicated something about God's value. But, but that golden calf said nothing about his righteousness. It said nothing about his holiness. It said nothing about his mercy or his justice or his love or his grace. That golden calf represented a reduced understanding of who God is. That was the problem. I mean, you just think about it. If you were to paint a picture of God and worship it, how would you paint his face? What would be on God's face? Would he be loving or smiling? Would he be regal and maj or majestic? Would he be pleased with faith or would he be displeased with sin? You're going to have to make some choices. And chances are you're going to pick and choose the, the things about God that you really, really like. And you are probably going to overlook the things about God that might make you uncomfortable. That might challenge you in some discernible way. You see, worshiping God with images portrays him to be less than he is. A few years ago, there was a prominent evangelical denomination who published a new hymnal. And in this hymnal, there was a song titled, In Christ Alone. And in the song, In Christ Alone, there is a lyric that they changed. They, they changed the lyric, the wrath of God is satisfied, to read, the love of God was magnified. Now, the copyright holders of that song found out, and they rejected that edit because it wasn't what they were trying to convey. And so this denomination decided to exclude that song from their hymnal altogether. Now, there were other lyrics in the song that, that focused on God's love, so it seems as though the denomination just didn't want to emphasize God's wrath. They didn't want God's wrath to be a part of their worship, God's wrath of being a part of their singing, and so they edited it out. And by editing, editing it out, they reduced God's attributes. And let me ask you, is there an attribute of God revealed in Scripture that's excluded in your worship? Is there one that you are tempted to ignore or overlook? Is there one that you are ashamed of? We've got to constantly ask this of our church as well. Is there an attribute of God that we have been neglecting in our worship, that we've been neglecting in our singing, that we've been neglecting in our Bible study? If there is, then our worship is moving in a wayward direction. And it behooves us to repent and recapture the glory of an irreducible God conveying the full range of his glory, affirming all that the scriptures affirm about who God is and what God is like. Now, one of the ways that this happens in our culture is you may find yourself in conversations where somebody will say something true about God. They'll say something like, oh, well, God is love. And yes, that is true. Amen. We, we agree with that. We affirm that God is love. But sometimes they will take that sentence and they will use it as a defense against other attributes of who God is. They may say things like, well, God is love, therefore he cannot be judgmental. They'll say things like, well, God is love, therefore he's indifferent towards uh, anything that may be considered sin or whatever the case may be. And so we may use this phrase, God is love, as a defense against other attributes of God. And what's interesting is that the very book, 1 John in the New Testament, where we read that sentence, God is love, in that very same book, there's another sentence that balances it out, and it's the sentence, God is light. And light, of course, is a metaphor for God's holiness. It's a metaphor for his righteousness. It's a metaphor for his being utterly different and utterly distinct from you and I. God is light and he is love. Which one is it? Well, he's both. And God would worship embraces that. God would worship celebrates that. God would worship refuses to reduce God to being less than he is. 
But not only does wayward worship reduce God's attributes in this story, you find it reducing God's commands. Notice that the family showed a semblance of respect for the command not to steal. But it seems the mother was only upset about that one because it affected her personally, which is why she blatantly disregarded commandment number two about making a carved image of God. Breaking that one didn't affect her life rhythms. It didn't affect her life pleasures very much. You see, this is cherry-picking at its finest. We tend to care about the commands of God that most readily intrude upon the many kingdoms we are building for ourselves. This is why we give a hearty two thumbs up to do not steal, a hearty two thumbs up to do not murder, because those could intrude upon us. But the commands of God that seem to be less about us and more about him, we're a little less enthused about. We're not as quick to... To obey commands like, well, do not make a carved image of God. Or to put it another way, don't treat anything in creation as if it is God. Or we consider the command, keep the Sabbath holy. Those we're not as excited about or we're not as interested in because they don't affect us readily or immediately. Nor are we concerned, it seems, about keeping commands that we can break in the privacy of our own homes that that might not affect someone or intrude upon someone else in in some discernible way. For example, God's command about not committing adultery. And we'll say nonsensical things like, well, watching porn by myself doesn't affect anyone else. Well, it dishonors God. That should be a reason it bothers you. It dishonors God, and then it enlists divine image bearers into the service of your kingdom of self. Therefore, it needs to stop. Therefore, it needs to be repented of. Therefore, it needs to be fled Wayward worship reduces God's attributes and it also reduces God's commands so that we only, in wayward worship, we only listen to the types of command, to the commands we want to listen to. But then you have another dynamic in here. Wayward worship also reduces God's worth. I mean, this woman consecrated 1,100 pieces of silver but only gave five pounds of it for the carved image of God. That's 200 pieces of silver. Clearly, she doesn't recognize the worth of the Lord. I mean, if you're going to make If you're going to carve out an image of God, you better go for it, right? I would imagine that's worth putting all of your resources in, not not just a small sum of it. So she's not recognizing the worth of the Lord, but then what's really striking about it is that she gives the money right back to her thieving son, and her thieving son takes it and uses it to fuel his idolatry. No wonder when you get to verse 6, you read, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did whatever seemed right to him. This includes how they were worshiping the Lord. You see, in Deuteronomy chapter 12, God declared where and how Israel was supposed to worship him. So they weren't free to worship the Lord anywhere they wanted, and they weren't free to worship the Lord any way they wanted. They had to follow what God had revealed. Yet Micah here is only doing what, is right, is what seemed right to him. And let's keep reading in verse 7. There was a young man, a Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, who was staying within the clan of Judah. The man left the town of Bethlehem in Judah to stay wherever he could find a place. On his way, he came to Micah's home in the hill country of Ephraim. Where did you come from, Micah asked him. He answered, I am a Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, and I am going to stay wherever I can find a place. Micah replied, stay with me and be my father and priest. And I will give you four ounces of silver a year, along with your clothing and provisions. So the Levite went in and agreed to stay with the man. And the young man became like one of his sons. Micah consecrated the Levite, and the young man became his priest. 
and lived in Micah's house. Then Micah said, now I know that the Lord will be good to me because a Levite has become my priest. So here we meet another character, right? A young Levite from Bethlehem. And Levites uh, were caretakers of the tabernacle. They were to help take care of the tabernacle, which is the place that God's glory and God's presence was believed to dwell amongst God's people. And at this point in time, the tabernacle was located in a place called Shiloh, which wasn't far from Bethlehem. And as a Levite, he was to be a caretaker of the tabernacle, but then he was also to serve as an assistant to the priests who were consecrated to serve in the tabernacle. But apparently that wasn't enough for this guy. He wanted more. And so we meet him as kind of a wandering sojourner, a nomad of sorts, where he's trying to find himself and find his place in this world. And it seems as though he's following the path of least resistance, and he's just waiting for an opportunity to pop up in his life. Well, it seems that one does here because Micah makes him an offering he can't refuse. He hires him to serve as priest in his homemade sanctuary. Micah believed that replacing his son with a Levite would, would elevate his status with the Lord and it would give some credibility to the homemade religion he was creating in that moment. And so when you get to the end of Judges chapter 17, what you begin to discover is that Judges chapter 17 is full of the forms of faith. It's full of the forms of faith. It's full of religious words, objects, religious activities, religious persons. But none of it has been rooted in the substance of divine revelation. There is no discernible desire to worship God as an end in and of itself. Everyone, it seems, are using the forms of faith to serve their own interests. I mean, here you have a mother using them to indulge her son. A Levite to secure a better life for himself. And Micah to achieve prosperity by adding a veneer of orthodoxy to his idolatrous shrine. What you begin to see at the end of chapter 17 is that wayward worship is self-centered. It is incredibly self-centered. And this type of worship shows up in our lives and it shows up in our culture in a variety of ways. I'll just point out one dynamic. Such worship shows up today in the ironic, the ironic religious routines of those who claim to be spiritual but not religious. Those who prefer, perhaps, to seek God in nature but not in Scripture. As if Scripture doesn't affirm God's glory in nature. They love the mountains because in the mountains they sense God. They see something about God. So they gravitate there and they celebrate the fact that they see God in nature. But then you ask them the question, well, do you see God in cancer? They, have, they don't have much of a response. Cancer is nature too, right? And if you have no other revelation outside of nature, outside of creation, you're not going to be able to handle the harsh realities of life, things like things that are distorted, things that are broken about the nature in which we live. Or you consider those who claim to get more out of reading the newspaper than reading their Bibles as if the Bibles do not contain the substance needed to deal with what's in the papers. I don't know about you, but I can read the newspaper and be overwhelmed by all the chaos in the world. And if I don't have something else... I'm lost. If I don't have something else, I can't handle life in a world like ours. I need revelation. I need scripture. But what you begin to see here is that self-centered worship is self-made, meaning the self sets the agenda. The self sets the priorities. What you begin to see is that self-centered worship is self-focused. 
It only seeks the comfort of the self and the convenience of the self. But then you also see that self-centered worship is self-assured. It's self-assured because it blocks out the self-contradicting voice of divine revelation. What that means is that the spiritual but not religious crowd may embrace the forms of faith but neglect the substance of faith because it is the substance of faith that declares life is not about you. That life is not about your comfort. It's not about your convenience. It's not about your sense of what's relevant. Life is about God. He created life. He sustains life. And he insists on being the center of life. Now we hear this and you know that the problem of Self-centered worship is that it will inevitably be interrupted by the harsh realities of life in a fallen world. It will inevitably be disrupted. Self-centered worship always collapses upon itself. It always falls apart. And you see this happen in chapter 18. This is exactly where the story goes next. Because not only is wayward worship reductionistic and self-centered, it is manufactured worship. Meaning the foundations upon which it stands is faulty and it will crumble Notice chapter 18, verse 1. In those days there was no king in Israel, and the Danite tribe was looking for territory to occupy. Up to that time, no territory had been captured by, the, by them among the tribes of Israel. Now, if you recall, the book of Judges opens with the people of Israel first entering the promised land. After being redeemed from Egypt by the Lord and receiving the law at Mount Sinai, after entering into a covenantal or an exclusive relationship with God, they, they then found themselves at the promised land and God instructed Israel, which was divided at that time into 12 tribes, saying, look, there's a portion of this land for each of the tribes, but you have to go seize it. You have to go, you have to go get it. But the only way that was going to happen is if all the tribes would believe God and trust God to go for it. But most of the tribes don't do that. Most of the tribes were too afraid to go for it. One of those tribes was the Danites. And because they refused to go for it, they, they didn't get their portion of the land and they were forced to live as nomads in the hill country. And at some point in time, their nomadic wanderings brought them to this point where they see this other land that looks promising to them. And notice what they do. It says, so the Danites sent out five brave men from all their clans, from Zorah and Eshtael, to scout out the land and explore it. They told them, go and explore the land. Now, the scene here. The scene in this moment is set up to remind readers of what happened when Joshua and the Israelites first showed up on the promised land. When they first got there in Joshua chapter 2, Joshua says, okay, let's send some scouts. And they're going to go in, they're going to survey the land, and they're going to help discern a way forward in obedience to what God has revealed, in obedience to what God has spoken. And here in this moment, catch this, the Danites decide to do the same thing. They're doing the exact same things that Joshua did. Most scholars, when they read this chapter in the Bible, they believe it to be a parody of Joshua chapter 2. And what that means is, is that wayward worship is manufactured because it engages in empty imitation. Wayward worship engages in empty imitation. This happens in churches all the time. Every church is tempted in this direction. I mean, you think about it. A church catches wind of another church's apparent success, and so they go and they scout it out. 
They start surveying the land to see what they're doing right and what they're doing wrong. And then they identify the variables and they collect those variables. They bring them back to their context, plugging those variables in, hoping to attain the same success. And in those moments, such church, such churches take the path of least resistance by merely imitating what others are doing. And they avoid the hard work of heart work. They do not interface with divine revelation. They do not seek God's face. They do not commune with God. Instead, they try to manufacture success by engaging in empty imitation. But the thing is, the thing is, they may succeed on a surface level in doing that. They may succeed on a surface level, much like how the Danites will succeed in this story. So there's a warning here. There's a warning here that wayward worship can have success in making things happen. But that doesn't mean God is pleased and it doesn't mean that God is blessing. So you and I must learn to be very humble and very careful when it comes to evaluating divine blessing and evaluating divine activity. We must be careful. We must be cautious. Let's keep reading. They came to the hill country of Ephraim as far as the home of Micah and spent the night there. While they were near Micah's home, they recognized the accent of the young Levite. So they went over to him and asked, who brought you here? What are you doing in this place? What is keeping you here? He told them, this is what Micah has done for me. He has hired me and I became his priest. Then they said to him, please inquire of God for us to determine if we will have a successful journey. And the priest told them, go in peace. The Lord is watching over the journey you are on. And so think about it. This counterfeit priest presumes to speak on behalf of the Lord. And what he says to them is designed to tickle their ears. He tells this group exactly what they wanted to hear because wayward worship always pacifies its participants. Wayward worship always pacifies its participants. So you know your worship is wayward when you only hear from God what you want to hear from God rather than what you need to hear from God. So let me ask you, what do you do when you hear a sermon on Sundays that challenges or contradicts your assumptions or your preferences? Do you dismiss it or do you engage it? Do you hastily leave the church or do you humbly consider if what you heard is rooted in divine revelation? And if it's rooted in divine revelation, then are you responsive? Do you show allegiance to divine revelation by practicing repentance and confession, by exercising faith in Jesus? Do you put yourself beneath the scriptures or above the scriptures? You see, wayward worship pacifies its participants by once again taking the path of least resistance by only saying what people want to hear by tickling ears and affirming what the populace already wants affirmed perhaps you're familiar with the movie the stepford wives it's a bizarre movie the husbands of stepford connecticut they turn their wives into robots and these robots are utterly compliant they never cross the wills of their husbands and because there's never any crossing, there's never any tension, there's really no relationship that exists between the husband and the wife. Well, I wonder if some of you don't have a real relationship with God because you've never allowed him to contradict you. 
You've never allowed him to cross your will. You've never allowed him to confront you or challenge you. As a result, you are serving no one and nothing but a Stepford God of your own making. A God that is a figment of your own imagination that you have reduced in more ways than one. And that's the God that you are serving. You are not serving the God of creation. And you are not serving the God of redemption. And if that's the case, then repentance is required. Humility is called for. You come back to the story and it says that the five men then left Micah's home and came to a place called Laish. They saw that the people who were there were living securely in the same way as the Sidonians, quiet and unsuspecting. There was nothing lacking in the land and no oppressive ruler. They were far from the Sidonians, having no alliance with anyone. So the scouts find this little community that is innocent, unsuspecting, and in many ways it is defenseless. And so you should be picking up on a pattern at this point that wayward worship always, it always chooses the path of least resistance. And so if you and I, that means if you and I never meet resistance or opposition in our missional efforts and our service to Jesus, it might not be because we are faithful and it might not be because we're like Christ. We can't say, well, we're never opposed because we're just like Jesus and nobody ever opposed him because surely you know the gospel. And you know that Christ was opposed everywhere he turned. And you know that Christ never took the path of least resistance. And because he never did so, he was crucified. He was crucified knowing that that's where redemption was found. Well, see, earlier the the Danites refused to take the land God wanted to give them because it was hard. It would have required faith. But here they have a, they're convinced that they can wipe out Laish and they can do it easily. And so they return home and they rally 600 armed troops to go in and to take this place. And you begin to see how wayward worship requires no faith. It never requires faith. And that's a problem because in Hebrews chapter 11, we read that without faith, it is impossible to please God. Since the one who draws near to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So let's let's think about this as it relates to our lives and as it relates to our church. Do our ministry efforts require faith? Or let me ask it another way. Do we really need the Holy Spirit to live the lives we're living right now? Are we doing anything that necessitates the Holy Spirit's presence and the Holy Spirit's power in our lives? Or are we only doing what we are capable of doing? Have we gotten so good and so experienced at doing church that we no longer need God's presence and God's power that comes through the exercise of faith? You see, we are approaching our seventh year of worship and mission in our region as the Hallows Church. We started this expression in Fremont in 2012. We multiplied into West Seattle in 2015, then up in Edmonds in 2017. Over the course of that time frame, we've hosted lots of services like this. We've launched many missional communities. We've started many DNA groups. We've engaged the city in, on many fronts. And I'm wondering if it's possible that we've slipped into a routine that requires no faith. I believe we need to examine our hearts as a people in light of this passage. Ask yourself personally, have you shifted into autopilot? One sure sign of whether or not this has happened is if you pray. I mean, do you pray for each and every worship service? 
believing that this is the most eternally significant time that we share together week in and week out? Do you pray for your missional communities when you seek to study the scriptures together or fellowship together or serve your neighborhoods together? Are you relying upon the Holy Spirit saying, look, we want to see lives flourish in gospel-saturated relationships, and if the Spirit ain't helping, it ain't happening. So do you throw yourself upon the Lord in prayer? Are you desperate for his presence and his power in your life, or are you only doing what you are capable of doing? You see, our worship and service of Jesus is manufactured if we are only, if we are do, if what we are doing requires no faith. And my prayer for our church is that God would save us from spinning our wills in faithless activity. The day-night army starts heading back to take Laish, doing what they were capable of doing. And before, but before they reach. Laish, they camp out once again near Micah's home. And this next scene is perhaps the most pathetic scenes in all of Scripture. It's a sad state of affairs in verse 14. It says, The men who had gone out to scout the land of Laish told their brothers, Did you know that there are an ephod, household gods, and a carved image and a silver idol in these houses? Now think about what you should do. They thought about it and they said, Hey, well, we got to take this stuff. And so they go in and they ransack Micah's homemade religion. And look at verse 18. When they entered Micah's house and took the carved image, the ephod, the household idols, and the silver idol, the priest said to them, what are you doing? They told him, be quiet, keep your mouth shut. Come with us and be a father and a priest to us. Is it better for you to be a priest for the house of one person or for you to be a priest or a tribe and family in Israel? So the priest was pleased. I mean, that's a pretty good option, mega church or mini church. Of course, the Lord wants him at the mega church. It's always upwards, never backwards in the kingdom of God. And so he says, yes, sure, I'm all about it. And so he took his ephod, his household idols, and carved image and went with the people. The Danites start marching away, and then Micah and some of his men run after them. And when the five scouts saw them coming, they turn in verse 23 and they say, what is the matter with you that you mustered men? Why are you coming at us? That's what that means. Why are you coming at us like this? And then Micah's jaw just drops. His jaw drops and he says, well, you took the gods I had made and the priest and went away. What do I have left? How can you say to me, what's the matter with you? And then the Danites threaten him and he pipes down and you find Micah just standing there with his jaw hitting the ground as the day-nights walk away with his gods, the day-nights walk away with his priest, and Micah's left with nothing. Because wayward worship always ends in loss. It always ends in loss. And so his gods were taken from him. He has nothing. His reductionistic, human-centered, manufactured worship collapsed upon itself. Because that's where wayward worship takes people. That's where idolatry ends. It always ends in loss. Wayward worship is wasted worship. It wastes time. It wastes talents. It wastes treasures. It wastes life itself. Then you look at verse 27. After they had taken the gods Micah had made and the priests that belonged to him, they went to Laish to a quiet and unsuspecting people. They killed them with their swords and burned the city. There was no one to rescue them because it was far from Sidon and they had no alliance with anyone. So the Danites go forward and they succeed in their conquest. They demolish this little town and they rebuild a city calling it Dan. You know, sometimes sin wins. 
Sometimes sin wins in the world that is. Sometimes the agendas that people set for themselves are achieved. But again, apparent success is not a sure sign that a person or a church is Godward in their worship, is exercising faith and experiencing divine blessing. It's not a sure sign. But then you look at verse 30, and a surprising revelation revelation is given there. The Danites set up the carved image for themselves. Jonathan, son of Gershom, here it is, son of Moses, and all of a sudden the identity of that Levite priest is made known. And it turns out he was a grandson of mighty Moses, reminding us that lineage means nothing when it comes to whether or not a person's worship will be Godward rather than wayward. And so this son of Moses, and it says, and his sons were priests for the Danite tribe until the time of the exile from the land. So they set up for themselves Micah's carved image that he had made, and it was there as long as the house of God was in Shiloh. And so the chapter ends with this tension. The chapter ends with wayward worship being set up as a constant competitor with Godward worship. So that at this point in time, suddenly you have wayward worship established in a place called Dan. Meanwhile, Godward worship had been set up in Shiloh. In Shiloh is where worship was rooted in divine revelation. It's where it was authorized by the Lord. But in Dan, worship wasn't. And suddenly, you're in this chapter ends with an incredible tension. And it's an incredible tension that Israel would live in and that they would face in every generation from the, for the foreseeable, the foreseeable future. And the reality is that's the same tension that exists in our lives today. It's the tension between Godward worship and wayward worship. It's the tension that exists in us and around us as I speak right now. And what's interesting is that as you follow the storyline of the scriptures and you get all the way to the end, you get to a passage like Revelation chapter 7. And in Revelation chapter 7, you have this moment where all the tribes of Israel are listed and they are pictured as worshiping Jesus, as worshiping the Lord. But as you read through the passage in Revelation chapter 7, there's one tribe that's not listed. There's one tribe that doesn't show up, and it's the tribe of Dan. Dan's not there because wayward worship ends in loss. Wayward worship ends in devastating loss. And so the question becomes, how can Godward worship win out in our lives? And how can Godward worship win out in our church? This is such a depressing passage. Is there any upswing coming out of it from any direction? And I know if you're like me, you're, you're wanting some type of hope. You're wanting some type of good news because all of this has been bad news. And I would assure you, there is good news even in a passage like this. There is good news even in a passage like this. Even though chapter 17 is essentially a chronicle of failure, there is still hope. There is still an answer, and I'll show it to you. If you remember, two times the narrator points out that there's no king in Israel. He made that note twice. There's no king in Israel. And so it leads readers to believe, okay, if there is no king in Israel, then everything will be fixed if, they, if we could just get a king, right? But we know that can't be true because it's not that Israel just needed a king or any kind of king to sit on a throne and to rule over the people. That's not what they needed, the story of Abimelech assured us of that. No, they didn't just need any king. They needed a certain kind of king. 
They needed a covenant-keeping king who could restore Godward worship in the land. Now soon, David would become king in Israel. And he would do a better job than most Old Testament kings. But even David wouldn't get it right. Even David wouldn't show himself to be a covenant-keeping king. I mean, after all, he was a murderer and an adulterer. And many kings would come after David. And they, some would try, some wouldn't, but all of them failed to some degree. And they failed so much and so often that eventually Israel's wayward worship ended in the loss of exile. So that there came a point where Israel lost their land and they were conquered by the Babylonians. And they were brought out or they were taken into exile and into alienation. But all of that, all of that devastation in the Old Testament, it just sets the stage. It sets the stage for the arrival of the one who would come and make it all right. This better king that the world was groaning for and longing towards, a better king who would come, who, would, who wouldn't simply be like the Lord. He would actually be the Lord. He would be Emmanuel, God with us. We're talking about Jesus the Christ who would step into this world and be our covenant-keeping king, which means Jesus lived the life that you and I could never live. He obeyed God in every thought, every word, every deed. He kept covenant with the Father all the days of his life. And because he did that, when he went to the cross and died there, his death meant something. His death mattered because of his obedience. And then you know that after Jesus died, he didn't stay dead, but rose from the grave to show himself as the victorious, conquering, covenant-keeping king, as the one who would do for us what we could never do for ourselves. All of a sudden, this Jesus becomes the one who can restore Godward worship in our lives and who can fuel Godward worship in our churches. This Jesus who could do this by rooting our worship in Revelation so that we can come to see the trustworthiness of Scripture because the Scripture points us to the reality of Jesus. It leads us to put our faith in Jesus. So we study the Scriptures and we're honest with the Scriptures so that we can find our way to this covenant-keeping King. He gives us Godward worship by rooting our worship in the Scriptures that bear witness to Him. But then He restores Godward worship by centering our worship upon His performance for us and not our performance for Him. So that our worship becomes all about what Jesus did. And then he gives us Godward worship by supplying us with his spirit. So that we might worship God in spirit and in truth. We might worship God with a reliance upon the Holy Spirit according to the truth of what God has revealed. In other words, Jesus, our covenant-keeping king, steps onto the scene and he makes Godward worship possible. By making us Bible people. By making us gospel people and by making us spiritual people. That is, men and women who are filled with the Spirit of God, Christ in us, the hope of glory. To put it simply, Godward worship arises when submission to Jesus as King occurs. Godward worship arises when submission to Jesus as King occurs. Let's pray.